Have you ever lost something important to you? Have you ever lost something not even all that important and it just drives you nuts because you can't find it? Yeah, you know that feeling when you first realize it, it's missing, right? Whatever that thing is, it's like, I haven't seen that for a while. You check the normal spine, it's not there. It's this growing desperate panic that just sets in. You look everywhere. Truly everywhere, don't you? You look in the most absurd places where we're just, just thinking maybe it somehow got underneath that couch I haven't sat on in two years. It might be there. I'll check it 20 times to see if it might be there. Sometimes the thing you lose pops up. And you find it. And it's, oh, such a relief. Other times it's gone. It's gone forever. You never see it again. And maybe you miss that thing, but even more so, you just want to know where it went, right? Yeah. For instance, sometimes we lose things. If you are a Lions fan, you've probably lost your mind. I know you've lost a lot of time cheering for them, rooting for them. It might be our year. This might be our year. It's not, okay? It's not. We're rebuilding. We've been rebuilding for 50 years. Sometimes you never get back what you lose. And for many Lions fans, you've lost your mind. There's no coming back from that. Have you ever thought that you lost something only to realize you actually didn't lose it. You were just having a moment, right? Have you ever, anyone do this one? Where are my glasses? Any of you do that? Uh-huh, where are they? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Or your, your keys and they're in like, you put it in like the other pocket or whatever. Yeah, we all do this. We all do this. Well, in this last, or not this last, the second to last message and from a hat, there's a question that we pulled out, and it's in regard to the most important thing that we can have. And the question surrounds whether or not we are able to lose that thing. This is the question that we pulled out. Can a Christian lose their salvation? And the text that it referenced was Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. So that's what we will explore together today. I want to give us some context on the book of Hebrews so that we don't just jump in blind. Now, the the book of Hebrews, obviously it's a New Testament letter. There's a lot of debate over who wrote the book of Hebrews. For a long time, people believed it was St. Paul who wrote a whole lot of the New Testament, most of the New Testament. But Hebrews really differs in style and tone and and focus uh, compared to all of Paul's other letters. So now many believe it's not Paul. I think it's okay for us as Christians to say that truly only God knows uh, who he wrote this book through, and that's okay. We trust that it is still God's word, and it is a beautiful book. It is full of depth. It is, uh, in every way, it's kind of characterized as what they say is a sermonic letter. Have you ever said that before, sermonic letter? Which is to say, it's, it's kind of like if a pastor were to give you his manuscript, okay? And you read it. That's like a sermonic letter. It's a very pastoral letter. And the audience of the book of Hebrews is Jewish Christians, those that were raised in the Jewish faith and came to believe the good news of Christ and became Christians. So that's the context. Now the author just finishes calling out his audience and calling us to spiritual growth and maturity 
And then we find here our text for today, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Hear now the true word of the Lord. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. That is, those who have experienced the good things of heaven, that have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Okay. Okay. It's God's word for us today. And when you first read this, after you get through all the confusing language, you'll probably say, well, on first blush, it really appears as though, yeah, Christians can lose their salvation. That's kind of what it seems to say. But just as with all of Scripture, we, we don't just have a passing glance at it, right? There's, there's significant danger in just reading something very quickly and, and accepting our very first instinct. We want to and we're called to engage with this text and truly contend for what it means, what is the truth that it holds, what, what is it actually saying. And that's what we'll do a little bit in our time together here. What is this passage talking about? It starts with, it's impossible to bring back to repentance. And then it lists a few things. So let's, let's look at those and bring some clarity. First thing it lists is, it's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened. Now, enlightened here in, in the Greek it was written in, it means doctrinal understanding. Okay, to be enlightened means to, to know some truths about God uh, surrounding doctrine and to, to learn something about Jesus. Then it says those who have experienced the good things of heaven, those that have shared in the Holy Spirit, they have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. Who, who are these people exactly the author's talking about? Who are these people? Well, in this verse, the author is primarily talking about folks who had, they had, they had gotten involved in their local church. And they were active in their small little house churches, their congregation. They had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they have listened to the word of God as we all are doing together right now. They saw the different ways that the Spirit was working in and through believers. But the author says it is impossible to bring these people back to repentance. Why? Let's look again a little more deeper. Once enlightened, as we said, that's doctrinal understanding. They grew in knowledge. They were once enlightened, but it doesn't say they were transformed. They were once enlightened, but it doesn't say they are redeemed. An example, I can read a whole lot about brain surgery, right? But that does not make me a brain surgeon. You would not want me to ever operate on your brain, right? No, you would hardly want me uh, to clip your nails, okay? Because that's scary enough. Have you ever tried clipping a kid's nails? You clip them once and all trust, gone, okay? No experience, that's a hypothetical. Um, I can read all I want about brain surgery and learn so much about brain surgery, it doesn't make me a brain surgeon. You can learn a whole lot about Jesus, but that doesn't make you a Christ follower. It also says they have experienced the good things 
of heaven. It doesn't say they are a citizen of heaven. I'm a big Pistons fan, right? They talk about Lions. Now, Pistons have had success. That's another topic. I could sit courtside at a Pistons game. I could have those seats right next to the bench. I could cheer my guts out. I could even exchange high fives with the team as they come to the bench. I could have all the gear on, but that doesn't make me a part of the team. I can cheer. I can celebrate all this stuff. But until I get my call from the higher-ups, I'm not on the team experienced the Pistons, but I'm not part of the Pistons, okay? It said they shared in the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't say they've received the Holy Spirit. Experienced the Spirit working in and through others, you can start to realize something more is going on here, something I can't quite understand or explain. There's something going on, but sharing in something is different than receiving. It's different than than having it. And then it says, having tasted the goodness of the word of God. Tasted. Just a taste. Like one of those samples at Costco. It's just a taste. They have tasted. Yeah, they've gotten a hint of what it is. They've tasted it. But they have not yet eaten of the fullness of the feast that the Lord offers at his table. This is the reality. People can come to know about God. They can even hang out at church. They can listen weekly to the Word of God. They can be enlightened, as the text says, to who God is and His ways. They can grow in knowledge about God. We can see what He's done in others' lives, possibly even see what He's done in their own life. All this is possible and more. People can have this experience and still never fully surrender to the Lord never fully experience a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They've experienced Christ, but at this stage, they haven't fully given their lives to him. This would be the difference between marrying someone and just going on a few dates and then parting ways. So all that to say, this passage is not talking about Christians who have fully surrendered and received salvation from God and given their life to Jesus. For we believe that if we call Jesus our Lord and Savior, with a repentant heart, we acknowledge he alone is the one true God. He died for our sins that we might be saved. Nothing can ever take that most amazing gift away. We also believe It's not on our own power we're saved. It is only in the power of God that we are saved. It is God alone who saves. See, you can put on the outfit of a Christian. You can say all the right words. You can show up to volunteer at all the events. You can sing as loud as you can during the songs. You can give amens all throughout the message. But that is just the form of a Christian. None of these things gives you salvation. Salvation comes from Christ alone, through faith. Now many, and we've probably all experienced this, many may experience that emotional hit, that spiritual taste of something more going on, that emotional hit of God. We can have those experiences without actually giving our lives to God. Those are the ones that breaks our heart that will walk away, that will walk away. 
They have an experience, but they haven't surrendered their life to God. They've had an experience, and then something draws them away. And as the text claims, you cannot lose something that you never held in the first place. This text in question, it says it's impossible to bring these folks back to repentance. Uh, You know, bring these folks, as we've described, back to repentance. Because you cannot bring someone back to repentance if they have not yet repented. That's why it's impossible. Or that's why it's as if Jesus is still on the cross because we haven't acknowledged what he's done for us. That's what the text is getting at there. You can't bring someone back to repentance if they have not yet repented. Now, we know salvation comes through Christ alone. But we have a very small work to do with this. Very small. He does all the work. We have just simply to repent and believe. It's essentially... We accept the gift, the most gracious gift that Jesus offers and invites all of his children into. Not all accept that gift, but some do. And those that accept, those who repent and believe, are saved. Without a repentant heart, it's as if someone logically understands Jesus went to the cross, but they have not yet felt or surrendered to that truth. And without a repentant heart, you cannot receive the gift that Christ offered upon the cross. Because salvation is secured only in the power of God. But the beauty is, once it is secured, it will never leave. And if someone completely walks away from the faith, then that is evidence that there wasn't a true repentant heart's commitment in the first place. It says so in Ephesians that that those with saving faith will endure through the end, will endure till the end. That doesn't mean there aren't moments in our faith journey that we, we have these down moments and we're questioning things and we're struggling. It's good to have doubts. It's good to struggle and wrestle. It's not good to stay there. But that's part of our faith journey. But those with faith, it says, will endure to the end. Our faith proves, is proven by our fruit. And so we go on this journey. John Calvin calls it this. Uh, it's the difference between temporary faith and true saving faith. I, I love how he says this too. This, 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 this is this way he, he has such a way with words. Those with a temporary faith, they have but grasped the shadow, but not the substance. They've grasped the shadow. It takes the shape of it. It kind of looks like it. It's kind of like it, but it lacks everything that matters. It's not the substance of our faith. So those that grasp the shadow are prone to walk away because they realize there was nothing to hang on to until they come to that place of conviction and surrender, which leads to life eternal in the loving arms of our Savior. There's enough good news there. We could just end things here, but alas, we will not. That would be way too short, right, my friends? No one laughed. But there's a warning in this text. Naming this, saying this, proclaiming this comes with the reality there's a dangerous and scary element to this. 
we, we, if you're like me, especially like as a kid, I would always wonder this. Am I in or am I out? <laughs> right? You, you, you wonder, am I actually saved? So we all have this warning to consider. How do we know if the faith we hold is just temporary or true saving faith? And what comes to mind for me is one of the passages that to me is one of the most troubling and unsettling passages in Scripture. So words of Jesus found in Matthew 7. 22 through 23. This is what Jesus says. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And we performed many miracles in your name. And what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. He didn't say, I once knew you and then you fell away. No, Jesus says, I never knew you. In other words, you never knew me. You never knew me. Jesus, in this passage, he's addressing false worshipers. Okay, those that, that had the form of faith but lacked the heart and the substance of faith. They went through the motions, but they never gave their lives and their heart to God. Simple question. The most important question for us to ask. Have you given your life to Jesus? Not just in words, but in your heart. Have you been moved by what he's done for you? Did you come to that place of surrender where you said, Oh, He is the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the world. He's my Savior. Do you believe that he took your sin, that he died the death that we deserved, and that three days later he rose again from the dead? Is he Lord of your life? Those with a false faith will never make that claim. But those with true saving faith proclaim this. And with a heart commitment to Jesus, he becomes the Lord of our lives. And this is the good news. Oh, and there, it's a lot of good. It's a lot of good. It is the good news. The invite goes out to all. Not a single person who has ever walked the face of this earth aside from Jesus is worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy for this gift. Oh, but he's worthy. He is worthy to give it, and he gave it. He invited all to receive it, knowing not all will accept it. Will you accept his invitation by proclaiming your belief? For when you do, you need not fear ever losing it. It is not like your keys or your glasses or the mind of a lion's fan or whatever else you might lose. It is not like those things. It is God's word that assures us of our blessed assurance that we have in Christ Jesus. Here is a glimpse of the good news that we have from our assurance of our faith. Consider these very words of our Savior Jesus. As troubling as those first words I just said from Jesus were, is the comfort that is found in these words of our Savior. My sheep, hear my voice, and I know them. Oh, and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one is able, it is not possible for anyone to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Praise the Lord. When you are saved, you are saved. When you are saved, you are saved. You cannot lose that. You are a new creation. Salvation, it's the work of God alone. I got a bunch of passages here, and here's just a quick synopsis of them. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you, what will he do? He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? God will never give up on you. Your faith will endure to the end. Not on your own power, but the power of the one who holds you. Not just you. He's also at work in you and all who believe in him. And he will never let you go. As it says in 1 John 5, we have been given new life. This is a life over death. A life that cannot be crushed, for it is eternal life given by eternal God. God has given us this gift, this eternal life, and nothing can crush it, for it was given by the God who created the cosmos and holds it all together. Our new life, it's not like a vaccination. It's not like a simple shot that will prevent us from from this thing called death. It's not like that. It's an entire new identity. We become a new creation. As the waters of baptism that you walked by, and I encourage you to dip your fingers in as you leave, as those waters remind us, when Jesus died, we died with him. And when he was rose to life, he rose us with him as a new creation, a new life. The old is gone. The new has come. We are a new creation. We are signed. We are sealed. We are saved. And we are delivered. Romans 8.30 says, yeah, there it is. Those he called, those he called, God justified. That means made right with God. And those he made right with God, he glorified. Being called here in Romans 8, that means the same call that Jesus gave to Lazarus. Okay? Come out of that grave. You who were dead, you are now alive. He calls us out of the grave and he gives us life. Out of death and into life. He called us. He saved us. He made us right with God. And then what does he do? He glorifies us, which seals us eternally forever with him. He raises us up on what? Eagle's wings. And none will ever knock us down. First Thessalonians 5. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify. That means make you holy. Make you holy. May he sanctify you completely. He who calls you, God is faithful and he will do it. If you've been called, God is faithful and you'll be kept not just for tomorrow, not just, you know, until you go astray and then you lose it. No, you'll be kept for the last day. 
1 Corinthians 1. Christ will, what? Sustain you till the end. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the assurance we have God's very true word states with clarity and in abundance that once we give him our lives, we are his forever. And nothing can ever, 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 ever change that. He who is sovereign, he who is all-powerful, he who holds us in the palm of his hand will keep us and nothing can ever take us away. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. That is our assurance. But we must not stop there. We have one final word. And it's how do we respond? How do we dare respond to such an audaciously, audaciously, there it is, gracious gift? And that is our word, a final word on how we respond to this gift. How do you live having this assurance? Do we just do what we please, willy-nilly, knowing that we've been saved so we can just live it up, eat, drink, and be merry until he calls us home. As Paul would say, by no means. By no means. No, no. We dare not abuse this most incredible gift of grace. In fact, Scripture calls us to work out your, your salvation and fear and trembling. That's a kind of a scary word, but... Knowing we have this assurance, we live as though we don't, okay? We live knowing that we are sealed and saved, but we know we are called to be more Christ-like in our walk. We don't abuse a gift of grace. No, we live to make, make it worthy, us worthy recipients of the grace, knowing we're not worthy, but striving for it every chance we can. See, we live in the comfort that we are not saved on our own power, but God's power. And we live in response, doing everything in our power to share of the great things he has done. We will seek to live faithfully, knowing our God is always faithful. We will extend grace at every opportunity, knowing that there's not been a moment in our lives where we have not been the recipient of it. We will persist to pursue God at every turn, knowing that he continues to pursue us. And we lay down our own agenda, our own idea, and we take up God's to tell others of the great things he has done. For there are still people in this world, in our lives, who do not yet know the saving grace and freedom that comes from our awesome Savior. So we don't just bask in the assurance we are propelled and launched and sent out of our assurance to share of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of you and me. Praise be to him who alone saves. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. You are awesome, God. You are amazing. You are all-powerful and mighty, conquering Conquering the grave is just another day for you because you are in the saving business. 
You accomplished that which sealed it for all of us, Lord, and yet you continue to love us, to hold us, to guard us, to journey with us, to protect us, to inspire us, to convict us, to draw us closer to you. And all the while, those that believe in you, we will never be snatched out of your hand. We praise your name, God, for you are so good. But God, we, we, we praise your name while also holding a longing in our hearts, the same longing that you hold, Lord, for more of your beloved creation to come to know you as Savior and Lord. God, there may be some listening to this message even now who have not yet taken that step but are feeling a stirring within their souls where they want to believe this, they think they believe this. God, I ask as only you can in your spirit to do your work in them right now. Draw them to you so they may say and pray along with us that, Lord, you are my Savior. You are the Lord of my life. I lay my way down for yours. I am sinful and you are perfect and you took my sin for me so that I may live now and forever and ever. I believe in you. I long to follow you. You are my Lord. Have your way with me. And Lord, it's our prayer for any that prayed that, that we can come alongside and encourage and support them on the journey, knowing that they, through their life's ups and downs, will never be plucked from your hand. Knowing that though the life of faith is hard and brings struggle and hardships, that it is so good. It is so wonderful. And we have an enduring and a living hope and peace that's found only in you. And God, we just ask for the Spirit to continue to work mightily in all those in our lives who do not yet know you in this way. God, may you speak boldly through us as a living example of the great things you have done so that in your Spirit's work you can draw more ever closer to you. Make your name great, Lord. We know you are. We know you're at work. For you are mighty to save. We thank you, Lord, that this is not our own work that we do, but is fully your work and your power through us. So may we be your agents. May we be your vessels, your hands and feet in this broken and hurting world. Make it so today and all days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.